political bullshit. I've noticed a lot of people on the right posing really basic questions as a sort of gotcha. And oftentimes people actually struggle to answer these seemingly simple basic questions. Sometimes it's the simplicity of it that makes it hard to formulate an answer that you find properly represents your thoughts. So the following are 12 questions that I've been receiving a lot lately that are relatively simple questions, but not always the simplest to answer off the cuff. So some of these are questions you might hear from Republicans, uh, some from Democrats or progressives, some from people that are just totally apolitical or have a nihilistic point of view. But overall, they're general questions that I feel we should all be ready to answer. How can you vote for Joe Biden as a progressive? Now, contrary to what I just said, this isn't necessarily one that we should all be ready to answer because unless you're supporting Joe Biden in the election, then you wouldn't answer it at all. And I'm guessing there's a good chance that many of you watching this aren't supporting Joe Biden. So this is more of a personal question that I get a lot. And I debated whether I should make it first. And ultimately, I decided to because it's best answered by answering the rest of the questions or some of the rest of the questions. But you don't have to be supporting Joe Biden for the rest of the, the video to be relevant to you. But anyway, to answer the question, if you watched my channel at all a couple months ago, you know that I had almost no intention on throwing any support behind Joe Biden. I hate the blue no matter who and lesser of two evils mindsets, and I believe that the two-party system is destroying democracy by allowing these two parties to essentially nominate whoever they want and then continuously force us to vote for one of those two. So how could I support Joe Biden then? Well, in a nutshell, I believe that Donald Trump is an exceptionally bad leader that is accelerating the destruction of our country to a point that will soon be beyond repair. And while I typically don't agree with the idea of placing a vote just to go against somebody, kicking Donald Trump out of office takes precedence over my typical priorities this election. And like I said, the reasons for this are further answered in the next seven questions. What are your issues with Donald Trump? Well, he's a liar, even more than your average politician, which is quite the feat. He lies about his opponents, about important information, about media, about what he's going to do, about what he's done about reality. He fabricates a reality around him that supports his claims or denounces facts that he doesn't like. He's narcissistic in a dangerous way that's leading him toward authoritarian tendencies. He's actively trying to suppress voting, which is a threat to our democracy. He exploits the working class by directing their anger and frustration away from the source of their troubles and towards other struggling human beings through racism and xenophobia and nationalism because of his response to the COVID-19 pandemic or his lack of response, which is responsible for the death rate that we're seeing in the U.S., his reaction to the civil rights protests. These are all reasons that we're seeing a country facing ruins right now and why I'm much more worried about another four years than I was about a Trump administration four years ago. Can you give an example of him lying? This is one of those common right-winger questions because you see the claims about this huge number of lies that Trump's told since he's been in office. And he's such a pathological liar that I'm sure those numbers are pretty accurate. But they ask people, okay, you're saying he's told you know thousands of lies, then give me one, give me a clear example of him lying. And sometimes people just can't think of a good example to bring up on the spot. They might've seen videos of him telling clear lies, but they don't retain each individual lie. Or maybe maybe they just draw a blank because they're they're overwhelmed by the sheer number of options. It's like that video where they go around asking random strangers, to just name a woman, any woman, name a woman. And like a huge number of people just stare hopelessly into the camera, unable to answer, answer the question. So, so you have to have a good 
clear example when they ask you simple questions like that. Well, lucky for us, though, Donnie just dug himself a hole that gives us a clear, irrefutable instance of him lying that they they really can't argue with, even though they, they'll try. So I'm talking about the Bob Woodward recordings where he admitted to knowing how dangerous COVID-19 was going to be back in early February. So the inevitable comeback to this is, well, he was acting as a good leader by playing it down or playing it up, as Trump puts it. He wasn't lying. All right, well, let's go through it. Talking about the virus on February 7th, early February, he said, he said things like, these are quotes, it's not just old people, it's plenty of young people. I wanted to always play it down. Still, I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. It goes through the air. It's also more deadly than your even your strenuous flu. This is more deadly. This is 5% versus 1% or less than 1%, you know, so this is deadly stuff. So those are things he said in early February. Yet after he said those things, he constantly compared it to the flu, to the public, when he was speaking out in public. Over and over, he brought up the, the average flu numbers, implying this wasn't to be taken seriously relative to the average flu. But even the average flu numbers, when he brought those up, he would just make those up too. He lied about those. As COVID got worse and developed, the average flu numbers somehow got bigger and bigger. First, it was 25,000 to 69,000 deaths a year. Then suddenly it was 26,000 to 69,000. Then it was 27,000 to 70,000. Then it was 27,000 to 77,000. Then it was 27,000 to 100,000. So I don't know how, but somehow the average flu numbers were able to fluctuate thousands in just a matter of weeks. So he knew the severity of the virus in the beginning of February, but when the deaths started ticking up, he just kept saying and tweeting over and over these flu numbers, saying the flu was way worse than this. So in a press briefing on February 26th, 6th, he said as bluntly as possible, quote, this is a flu. This is like a flu. Then a month later, he said, a lot of people have said, ride it out. Don't do anything. Just ride it out and think of it as the flu. But it's not the flu. It's vicious. This is not the flu. <laughs> so he went from saying, and these are exact quotes. He went from saying, it's almost more deadly than even your strenuous flu. Then this is a flu. This is like the flu. Then a lot of people have said, ride it out. Don't do anything. Just ride it out and think of it as the flu. But it's not the flu. It's vicious. This is not the flu. But keep in mind, he knew the truth the entire time. That's the important thing here. Because the first thing in that series of information is him addressing this as far worse than the flu. Him addressing it as it actually is. Specifically, he says five times worse than the flu. So clearly he lied. And he openly admitted that he lied in the recording. He said, I always wanted to play it down. That means he lied. Now to be fair, and what everybody's going to say is, well, his lie was with the alleged purpose to keep everybody calm, you know, playing it down. So you can have a philosophical argument about the ethics behind this decision to lie if you want. You can argue that the unethical act of lying was outweighed by the positive effort to avoid panic, and that makes it right. But you can't say he didn't lie. But that's exactly what he's been saying. So he's lying about lying, even. His, his press secretary, Kaylee Mc... McKinney, McCunty was asked about it when uh, like two days later and she said he's never lied to the American people the recordings are right there like we, we can listen to them with our ears it's literally irrefutable evidence 
yet they somehow find it in them to still deny it. The other night in the ABC town hall, Trump himself said, no, he didn't lie. And then he immediately brings up an example of Winston Churchill addressing the people during World War II and telling them that they were going to be safe even though they were being bombed by Germany. And Trump said, hey, that, that was a lie. And it kept people calm. And that was great leadership. So what does that say that he brings it up and then says it was a lie and that it was great leadership? To me, that means he's obviously trying to make the argument that being dishonest is sometimes a necessary component to being a great leader. Yet he immediately still followed it with, but I didn't lie. Winston did, It was, and it was great leadership, don't get me wrong, but I didn't. I never lied. Well, then why even bring it up then? He, because the just he brings it up because that's the truth, but then the justification itself is a lie as well. It's You can't make the comparison between that situation with Winston Churchill and Trump lying about the pandemic. You just can't make that argument. You know, he justifies it by saying it was necessary to prevent panic and chaos. A pandemic isn't the time to employ this type of ethical lying. To compare it to Churchill during World War II is not at all a fair comparison. During a pandemic, the actions and the cooperation of the population play a much more critical role in the outcome. And while you do want to prevent excessive panic, you can't leave the people totally uninformed. Or worse, tell them the, the, actually the opposite of what is true. This didn't prevent panic. It ended up increasing panic because people didn't know what to believe. And then worse, it politicized the issue. It deepened the political divide. During a pandemic, a time when the people need to come together, when empathy isn't just something that's nice to have, but actually important for the lives of your neighbors. He called the idea that it should be taken seriously a democratic hoax. Anytime a state started to take it seriously, he called it a personal attack on himself, a political move so that they could win the election and, and beat him in the election. He used the pandemic to attack democratically governed states to bolster his own support, knowing that it was actually a deadly virus that did need to be taken seriously the whole time. And so the result is a large portion of the population now believing that this is some sort of hoax and they're refusing to take it seriously, throwing parades through Target, anti-mask parades through Target. There was, there was a mess of economic shutdowns, people refusing to wear masks, people protesting the lockdowns, a shortage of equipment and PPE, and now nearly 200,000 people have died. All because of this lie to keep us calm. And even the purpose behind keeping us calm wasn't for our own sake. That was another lie. It was for the sake of the stock market. 200,000 deaths, whatever. Still a great job because the stock market ended up evening out. <laughs> stock market's doing fine because the panic he was really worried about was the panic that would cause the stock market to shake up. But as long as the stock market's doing fine, he's a happy Donnie. That's why he's always coming back to the stock market. The only time he truly panicked was when the stock market crashed and was in trouble. Immediately, they began injecting trillions of dollars of liquidity into the stock market and then left us all with one $1,200 stimulus check. So all of these lies that he was caught telling red-handed were just justified by another lie and spun with more lies. He says it was for our own benefit, when in reality, it only worsened the national response, resulting in us being responsible for over 20% of the deaths, despite being only 4% of the population. But it's fine because the stock market's still doing fine. So Trump supporters love him because he tells it like it is. 
And now they're defending him for not telling us like it is, <laughs> for not being honest with us. It's incredibly hypocritical. And this is a clear example of not just him lying, but how dangerous his lies can be and why it actually is important to vote him out this year. Give me an example that he's racist and xenophobic. So this is another example of a gotcha from the right. I've seen more than a few videos of people being challenged after making these claims and then not having any real good examples that they can think of on the spot. That's because this question is usually framed in a way that asks for a narrowed instance of racism or xenophobia. Like, can you tell me one time he's been racist? And it can be hard to think of a specific instance like that because he isn't your traditional racist or xenophobe. His entire appeal as Donald Trump, the politician, is in creating an enemy that we can then all attack together as a glorious, glorified, united country. So he identifies the enemy. He dehumanizes them to make them easier to hate. He uses them as a scapegoat for our problems. And that manifests in action. So he identifies the enemy, illegal immigrants coming from Mexico, minorities. He then dehumanizes them by making up problems to make them seem like a savage people because it's hard to act inhumanely toward a fellow human, but it's much easier when that human is portrayed less like you and more like a savage. So he calls them murderers, rapists, criminals, dehumanizing them, despite the fact that statistically it's just not true. Statistically, illegal immigrants commit far less crime than American citizens. When the population of immigrants go up in a U.S. city, the crime rate goes down. Now, if you have some other arguments against immigration, then okay, I'm not getting into the whole debate about immigration here. My point is that when Trump calls them rapists and murderers, he says that knowing it's not true. Because statistics tell us it's not true. These are lies that he concocts in order to manufacture a hatred toward a group of people. So after he's dehumanized them, he uses them as a scapegoat for our existing problems. And that solidifies their position as the other and the enemy. So don't be mad at the corporations that are exploiting the working class and refusing to pay into the system while they reap all the benefits of the system that don't share the collective trillions of dollars in profits that they make each year, but they share the losses when they start to struggle a little bit, taking the money that we could be using for better schools and healthcare and the general welfare of the American people, but instead it's used as corporate welfare for the corporations that already hoard all of the profits that helped cause these problems in the first place. It's not any of that. You know, all the troubles you're facing today are caused by the immigrants. Not, not just immigrants, but the illegal immigrants. But that also includes those that are simply seeking refuge, which isn't legal for us to turn down or turn away. But as long as we call them illegals, those that fell for this rhetoric will lump them all together. And then eventually that hatred and anger manifests in action. And I don't like to throw the F word around a lot because... Because a lot of people use it in a way that's not actually true to its meaning. But this manufacturing of hate toward a group of people and then dehumanizing them and attempting using them as a scapegoat and attempting to turn a population against them, that's very characteristic of fascism. And now they're saying that they're illegally performing mass hysterectomies on immigrants? That's incredibly inhumane. Forcing sterilization on somebody because of their race and their social status. That's action. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump is a fascist Nazi, but by definition, that is an act that easily fits within the fascist ideology. So that's one way that Trump acts as a racist and a xenophobe. But there are more. And again, it's typically more nuanced 
than just using racial slurs or burning crosses, which is what they're looking for when they ask that question. But what they're looking for is irrelevant. It doesn't matter in relation to the truth. Just remember that. Look at how he reacts when crime is committed. Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two people in Kenosha. Trump defended him. He defended him as the shooter, the murderer. A week later, a protester shot and killed a right-wing counter-protester in Portland. And then a week after that, when the police were investigating it, they, they went to arrest him and they shot and killed him. Now, some accounts of that say he had a gun when police shot him. Some say he was totally unarmed eating a gummy worm and they shot him in cold blood. Trump responded to that, knowing those details, by saying that's how things need to get done. He says there's need, there needs to be retribution, that he was a violent criminal. He brings that up. So he openly supports extrajudicial shootings as long as you're attacking those that are calling attention to the systemic racism in America. After the white supremacy rally in Charlottesville, he refused to condemn the white supremacists responsible for the violence, yet he tear-gassed a Black Lives Matter rally when it was 100% peaceful. Looking back in the 70s and 80s, as a businessman, he was sued repeatedly for racial discrimination. In 1989, when there were five black teenagers who were convicted of raping a woman in Central Park, Trump took out full-page ads calling to bring back the death penalty. So he was calling to murder the teenagers who were convicted of the crime. They were later released after new DNA evidence proved they were innocent. It was like a decade later. And even after that, after they were proved innocent, Trump still refused to take it back. Somebody even asked him about it in 2016 after he became president. They asked if he would consider apologizing to them for taking out full-page ads calling for their deaths when they were actually five innocent boys. And he basically said, no, I, I think they're still guilty, even though the evidence says otherwise. Fuck the evidence. Fuck the fact that they've been proven innocent. It makes me feel too bad, and so I'm just going to go on believing that they're still guilty. And you might say, well, how can you say it's racist just because they were minorities? It's because the way he treats criminals of minority descent is incredibly different from how he treats white criminals. He has this tendency to treat them like they're less worthy of justice. You know, bring the death penalty back. In Portland, the police shot him down. That's what we need to do. We need retribution, not due process. Now compare that to Kenosha. It was self-defense. Charlottesville, oh, there was violence on both sides. You know, he can't pin the blame on them unless they're a minority or they're pushing for justice for minorities. Then they deserve all the blame in the world. How can you blame him for the pandemic? Well, I already touched on this a lot, talking about him lying. He downplayed the virus early on. He lied to the American people. He withheld important information that caused confu confusion and panic. And now we have an incredibly divided population where people are refusing to wear masks, protesting the lockdowns, which wouldn't have been necessary if we had a well-coordinated response in the first place. He dismantled the pandemic teams shortly after taking over the presidency, which resulted in the absence of a well-coordinated plan and the destruction of our federal stockpiles of ventilators and PPE that could have prevented the lockdowns that people were protesting in the first place. And despite all those shortfalls, he thinks he makes up for it with the same two points that he continues to bring up again and again. The travel ban and how well the stock market's doing. All right, first the travel ban. Yeah, that was a good decision that he made. I'll give him that. But that cannot be the one and only thing that he keeps pointing back to as the example of his good response. First of all, that was at the very beginning of the pandemic, like half a year ago. We're so far past that travel ban 
that there should be many other examples of his incredible response if they existed, but they don't exist, which is why he keeps resorting back to the travel ban. And then the action itself is far from the end all of a great overall response. That was a good early decision, but he totally fucked up all the preventative decisions by dismantling the pandemic team. And he fucked up every other aspect of the early response by lying to the American people and acting like a chicken shit and saying, yeah, I'm the president, but I can't actually do stuff. It's up to governors and mayors to do stuff. And he messed up pretty much everything after that, after the travel decision, which you know is true because if he hadn't, if he had other good examples, he would definitely be using them. Another reason is because the virus was already in the states. So while it was good to slow down the bringing in of new cases, it was already spreading like wildfire in Seattle and New York. So the outbreak had already infiltrated the population. The ban was good because it slowed down further infiltration, which is a good thing. But he acts like it was a saving grace and that nothing else was necessary after that. There's like 200,000 deaths. You said yourself, like months ago, if we keep it under 200,000, then we've done a good job. Well, you're going to have more than 200,000 deaths now, so will you finally admit you've done a shit job? No, of course not. He's just going to update the number to 1 million or something. As long as we keep it under 1 million deaths, we'll have done a tremendous job. Do you really believe the COVID numbers anyway? I mean, the CDC said only 6% of the deaths came from COVID-19 alone. So this is a newer talking point that people are totally misrepresenting to mean that only 6% of the deaths are actually caused by COVID-19. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean that 94% of people died from something else and it was just a coincidence that they also had COVID. It means that they just had another disease, which is very common, especially in the U.S., and that other disease could possibly be considered a contributing factor but it does not mean in any way that COVID-19 was not the primary factor in the vast majority of these deaths. It's almost certain that it was. There's a, a chronic form of kidney disease that I might have, PKD. I haven't been tested for it yet, so I don't know if I have it, but there's a 50-50 chance that I have it. If I do and I die of COVID-19, I'd be part of that 94%. That doesn't mean that I didn't die of COVID-19 just because I have this chronic kidney disease. Most people that die of the flu which is typically like 30 to 40,000 people a year, they don't die of influenza, they die of pneumonia. That doesn't mean that the flu wasn't the factor that led to their death, because it absolutely is. That's why we have a vaccine for the flu, even though it has a high comorbidity rate. AIDS has an incredibly high comorbid comorbidity rate. Does that mean that we should have just totally ignored the entire AIDS epidemic? Of course not. Comorbidities and chronic diseases are super common in the US especially. They're so common that if the if COVID-19 killed every single person in the country right now, the comorbidity rate would be 60%, according to a 2017 RAND study. So that might seem like a big gap, 60%, 94%, but that's if it killed every single person. If it was the sole thing responsible for the death of every American, the comorbidity rate would be 60%, which according to the right-wing logic would mean only 40% of the deaths would have been caused by COVID. And the rest would have been coincidences. It's, it's not true. It was 100%. That, that's just not what it means. Comorbidity is very common. It's not rare at all. It's, this is a total misrepresentation of the facts. But what about the economy? Before all this coronavirus business, he was killing it. So this is Trump's saving grace more than anything else. It's basically what he's running his entire platform on. Make America Great Again is now referring to nine months ago. So allegedly, it was the best economy in U.S. history. 
Now, first off, if you want to base presidential success solely off of economic success and economic progress, then Trump must have loved Barack Obama. I mean, Obama inherited a recession, the economy was in tatters, and he turned that shit around. He created the momentum that continued right into the Trump administration. He made far more progress than Trump has. If you're looking at just at economic progress, look at the Fred graphs. Progress overall slowed down substantially when you compare Obama's last three years with Trump's first three years. So that excludes 2020, so that to be fair to Trump, so it doesn't include any of this. So I, it was Trump still made progress, but it slowed down like 60%. And then you also have to factor in what Trump looks at as qualifiers for a great economy. So a low unemployment rate. Sounds good. Typically it is good. More jobs. But when the wage gap is getting bigger and bigger, then more jobs isn't representative of a better economy if they're all just paying 7 or $8 an hour. You just end up with more people working full-time who still can't afford to live. You end up with more working poor, people with full-time jobs who still fall below the poverty line. But Trump looks at the stock market. If the wealthy are doing fine, America's doing fine. Like right now, he, he's saying we're, we have a super V-shaped recovery. Even though tens of millions of people are unemployed, the poverty rate is increasing. People are losing their health care. They're unable to make their housing payments. They're facing eviction. Yet he calls it a super V and says everyone's doing great because the stock market's doing great. And that's his qualifier for a great economy, despite the fact that the top 10% own 85% of the stock market. And he even argued this in his town hall the other night. He says it is representative of how we're all doing because everybody owns stocks. That's just not true. It's not representative. A huge majority of the stocks are owned by the wealthiest 10% of Americans. 85% of the stock market is owned by the top 10%. That means that for those of us who do own stocks, it's indirectly through a 401k or some minor investments. It's hardly anything that's going to truly affect you right now more than, say, getting evicted would affect you. I have like $1,000 in the stock market through some low-risk investments in my retirement plan. So according to Trump, I should be thrilled when the stock market's doing fine despite everything else because it's representative of my financial well-being. The truth is, when the stock market takes a big hit, I'll lose like 30 or 40 bucks. And when it does well... I'll gain maybe like 20 bucks in a shorter period of time than usual. So it's not making or breaking me at all. The health of the stock market is largely irrelevant if the rest of the economy isn't following suit because I'm not relying on my money to make me money because I don't have enough money, which is why, again, it's only representative of the super wealthy who have enough invested that their money is what's making them money. So sure, the economy looked decent on paper, especially if you let Donald choose the papers. and But you can hardly even make that case now because even on paper, as we attempt to recover from this economic crisis, it's not a V-shaped recovery. It's not a super V-shaped recovery. It's a K-shaped recovery. The wealthy are gaining wealth at disgustingly high rates while the working class are continuing to struggle just to pay the bills. So those were the first half of the questions. I was intending on making this one video, but it's getting a bit longer than I intended. So I'm going to stop here and answer the last five questions in a part two video next week. Political bullshit.